Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag. When I take your questions, your comments, your takes, and whatever's on your mind, and I respond to them. So I posted in the YouTube community tab and on Twitter at Gil Gross about 24 hours ago to give you guys plenty of time to get your comments in. And I got less responses than I did two weeks ago, but still plenty, which uh, I'm very appreciative of. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to start on YouTube, and then I'm going to go to Twitter, and then back to YouTube again. Sounds good? All right. Hope everyone's safe. Hope everyone um, is making the best of this. Extra time with family, all that. All right, let's start with this first one. Why do you think match fixing is such an ongoing issue in tennis? What could be the reasons why players do it? And why do you think it's more likely slash common that a lower ranked player between 250 and 700 in the rankings would match fix? Please share your thoughts on this topic because I think the issue needs to be addressed in tennis. So there's two reasons why match fixing is an issue in tennis. Uh, the first is that too many players are broke. And you mentioned that it's more prevalent between, you know, in, or in uh, lower ranked events. Yeah, for sure. That's because players need the money. And uh, a gambler or a, a match fixer is very likely to be able to offer these lower ranked players more money than they could possibly win through prize money if they cooperate with a match fixing scheme. A lot of these players might have to quit the tour in a month, right? So they might feel like they have nothing to lose. They might not be, be making enough money and they'll have to quit the tour in a month because they can't pay their expenses and someone approaches them and offers them a bunch of money, which could you know maybe keep them afloat for a little while longer. That is the position that these players are in not trying to sympathize with them because it it's completely uh, sacrilege and obviously compromises the integrity of the sport but you know that's the predicament that they're in it's a tough one now the other part of this is that tennis lends itself to the ability to successfully fix matches the two sports that I'm familiar with that have issues with fixing is uh, tennis and combat sports. So boxing, MMA, or any other combat sport. There's just less moving pieces. It's easier to it's easier to fix. Think about how hard it would be to fix a basketball game or a baseball game. Any team sport. There's too many moving pieces. Too many people need to be on board. Too many people need to agree with it. And then too many people need to keep the secret. It really can't be done. But in tennis, only one person needs to be on board. And that's really, really dangerous. Same thing in fighting. It's even harder in fighting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's because in fighting, you actually, you actually have to be a pretty good actor to intentionally lose a fight and not look really obvious about it. But I would say in tennis, it's a little bit easier to do. So that's why safeguards need to be in place. And uh, tennis needs to monitor the gambling market. And uh, I know the Tennis Integrity Unit, the TIU, uh, they are dedicated to doing so. 
So I don't know. I, I don't know if this is a problem that's not being addressed. I see it as a problem that will uh, that is being addressed and needs to continue to be monitored. Who are the best players who didn't win a Grand Slam and who are the least great players, least great, who have won a Grand Slam? Um, the best players who haven't won a Grand Slam, I'll go with Ferrer and Nalbandian. Both of them have made a Slam final. Nalbandian made the Wimbledon final in 2002. Ferrer made the French final in uh, 2014, right? I think I have that year right. Um, you know, both of those were, you know, they were just not quite good enough. Now, they're very different because Ferrer was a talent maximizer. Couldn't have been any better. Everyone agrees with that. Where now Bandian probably could have been better if he was a little bit more. Now, he was, he was fast. He was quick, but probably could have been a little bit more physically fit at points in his career. A little bit more motivated, mentally consistent, but uh, he was supremely talented, Nalbandian, and uh, he never got it done despite being really, really good. Um, and then Ferrer, you could say the same. Least great players who have won a Grand Slam. I mean, so few players have slipped through the cracks. I mean, that's because if if Federer and Djokovic have a bad tournament, oh my God, Murray and Nadal are there, right? Or vice versa. So. That's why, you know, the big four was so deep and so consistent that they really hogged all the major titles, of course. So if your options, and I really can't speak to, you know, pre-2000s tennis. I'm just not familiar enough with each and every Grand Slam. But in the, in the modern era, you're left with very few options. You know, you're left with Andy Roddick, Marit Safin, Juan Martin Del Potro, Stan Wawrinka, um, and I think I'd have to land on Marin Cilic as probably the least great player who has won a Grand Slam in the modern era. With that being said, the way he won it in 2014, it, I mean, he was playing incredible tennis. It's not like he squeak, squeaked by. I mean, he beat Federer in straights. He beat Nishikori in the final in straights. So you have to go with Chilich, but to be honest with you, um, yeah, I mean the the way the way Chilich was playing is very deserving of a Grand Slam. <laughs> Gil, uh, you said earlier that you had a hard time picking out who's more likely to win a Grand Slam final first between Tsitsipas and Medvedev. Can you please elaborate on that? It's hard for me to elaborate on that uh, further than I think that. I'm more confident in those two than I am in like the next crop of players. I, I'm more, I think they're less all over the place than Zverev. I think they're much further along than Shapovalov. Chorich has really fallen off. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I just think that they're similar levels right now. They're at similar stages in their development. Why is Medvedev a bad matchup for Tsitsipas? I think that after their squabble at Indian Wells um, a couple years back, I think Tsitsipas has put way too much pressure on himself to beat Medvedev. And that's why. I don't think Tsitsipas has really brought his best stuff against Daniil. 
And uh, I think Daniil has, like, relished this rivalry, which I think is fading, by the way. I don't know if their contempt for each other is really um, still at a very high level. But, yeah, I think that, that Medvedev... We saw, we saw during the 2019 U.S. Open how Medvedev can kind of relish that villain's role. I think he probably did that against Tsitsipas versus uh, Stefanos, who often puts way too much pressure on himself as it is. And then I think when these matchups against Medvedev were elevated, and then it started, you know, the, the head-to-head stuff started getting elevated. Oh, you know, Steph has never beaten Medvedev. I think Tsitsipas was just kind of psyching himself out. All right, what is the one power that you would add to players like Ferrer, Monfils, Raonic, and Nishikori to make them Grand Slam champions? Great question. There's more of this question, but I read it, and I don't get the rest of it, so I'm just going to stick with the first part of it. Um, Ferrer, big serve. I'd give him a big serve. That's easy. Monfils, great shot selection. Now he's developing good shot selection, and, and you see what's what's happening. Mm, you know what? Maybe I should give him great stamina. <laughs> it's really tough between those two. I could give him great stamina. That way he can still win without his shot selection. Or I could give him great shot selection so he doesn't have to run as much. You see what I'm doing here? You see? Yeah, you know, I might give him great stamina. He'd be way tougher to beat if he had great stamina. I don't know, man. That's so hard. I don't know if I should give him stamina or shot selection. Do I have to choose? I'll just leave it at that. Raonic. I'd give him a better topspin backhand. That's what I would give Raonic. He volleys pretty well. You know, he's, he's good enough at the, at the net. He's not amazing, but he volleys well enough. His forehand's pretty big. It's pretty good. The serve is the strength. He moves just about as well as you can ask for a big man. But the backhand wing is where, as a baseliner, he really falls off, and, and that side can really be attacked. So I'd give him a better topspin backhand. I think that that could round out his uh, his baseline game. When you have one side that's so much weaker, it's it's hard to have a great deal of success from the baseline. So I'd give Raonic a better top and back end. Nishikori, same as Ferrer. Such a good baseliner, I'd just give him a bigger serve. Do you think Federer would have won? Do you think that if Federer won those match points against Djokovic, two U.S. Opens and the Wimbledon, that he would have had an edge over Djokovic both mentally and record-wise? Uh, you saw how he overcome Nadal mentally by beating him in Australian Open 2017. Um, not only would he be leading the head-to-head -head with Novak, but he would have saved. But he would have multiple five-set wins over Novak in the bag, which would uh, which would give him a lot of heart next time he played Novak. You know, I don't know. I, I think that I don't really think so. To be honest with you, I think that Djokovic became a better player than Federer in the 2010s. That's consistent with their overall bodies of work. I just don't subscribe to the the idea that Federer had some kind of mental block or has some kind of mental block against Djokovic. 
Uh, I just think that Djokovic has stolen a couple matches from Federer. And while, while I do think that Djokovic, Djokovic's ability to elevate in big moments is uncanny and has helped him against Federer, I think that that ability helps him against all players, not just Federer. And if you want to get on Federer for hitting too safe an approach shot at 1540 at Wimbledon, was that approach shot too safe? Was it a little bit nervous? Would he have hit it better in the middle of the first set? Yeah. But is that because he was playing Djokovic or is that because it was championship point in the Wimbledon final? I don't think you can say it's because he was playing Djokovic. And then if you want to say that the 2010 U.S. Open match point psyched him out, Here's where that argument falls apart. Federer beat Novak in the 2011 French Open. Djokovic having his best, uh, the best year of his career so far, and Federer in the French semifinals beats Novak. So it's hard to say that th that the 2011 U.S. Open was a result of Federer not having belief after what he did at Roland Garros to Djokovic. How involved do you think the big three will be in tennis after their retirement? Do you envision television commentary, coaching, and tournament administration, or will they more or less disappear like Sampras with only occasional public appearances? It's a great, and uh, this is a fascinating question. So um, what are the variables here? All three have families. Nadal said on an Instagram live he would like to have children um, with his with his uh, newlywed. Um, so let's start. Let's go category by category. This is fun. Uh, television commentary. I think that you could see that in Andy Murray's future, but I don't think you see that. I couldn't see it in Nadal's future. Couldn't really see it in Federer's future. Um, and I definitely could not see that in Djokovic's future. None of those players are John McEnroe's or Jim Courier's. Um, now, you know, yeah, I, it, it's funny. I might have a bit of an American bias. So now I'm thinking of Boris Becker and I'm thinking of Tim Henman. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of non-Americans who have gone into this and, and what are the common threads with with those guys but i just don't see it i don't see any of them getting into commentary coaching i think nadal pro would probably love to coach i could really see nadal in coaching um i think that he is fairly obsessive and fairly in love with the idea of training and i think that he comes from a family of coaches with uh, with his uncle, and he also comes from a family of athletes. So I, I think that Nadal is going to want to be in sports. I don't think he's going to want to... I think he's going to want to be around the game, but more from a player's side. Um, Federer. For Federer, you know, it would have to be... For all these guys, you know, their children have to grow up. I could see Federer getting into coaching perhaps... Um, 
No, I couldn't. I changed my mind. Can't see Federer getting into coaching. Uh, but I could see... I could maybe see Djokovic getting into coaching. Tournament administration? That's Federer's calling. Federer's calling... Federer's calling is... Uh, to me, it's it's at the business side of things. You know, he's done great stuff with his foundation. Now, the other two players have also done great things with, with their foundations. But uh, Laver Cup, we've already seen it. I think Federer wants to run the show. <laughs> Federer, wants to, Federer wants to take charge, I think. And uh, I could see him in leadership positions. That's where I could see Federer. Nadal and Djokovic, I could see them coaching. Um, Cedric wants to thank me for my 30 for 30 ESPN documentary recommendation. He watched the Tyson versus Douglas one, uh, when they fought in Japan. Um, yeah. And now, now you have the Michael Jordan documentary, the last dance ESPN films. They deliver, they deliver. James Newman says, uh, no questions, but keep doing what you're doing. Really appreciate it. I'm furloughed at the moment, and listening to these are, are uh, keeping me sane. I appreciate that, and um, good luck. Stay well. Um, hi, Gil. Hope you are doing well. I want to ask you about what changes you think are going to happen to the ATP tour after this lockdown. I mean, in the stadiums, are there going to be rules for sitting next to each other or wearing masks? And uh, which players are going to adapt first and start to win more matches? Not really sure. Not a doctor. Um, it's hard for me to, to hold any authority with that. Um, but it will be interesting to see if there's a period of time where there are social distancing measures in the stadium. So, you know, I, I don't know. You know, what if you sold... Like, it would be interesting to me if they would maybe sell every, like, fourth seat. That way you actually have distancing. It's even that is such a dystopian image for me. To me, going to a, a tennis match is all about talking to the person next to you. Or not all about, but uh, that's a big part of it. So it's it's all dystopian to even think about. All right, I'm going to go to Twitter now. Um, this person has asked me like a million questions, so I'll just get to uh, some of my some of the ones that I think are best. Who's the most promising American player? Who will have the best career? Fritz Tiafo Opelka. Um, Fritz is the furthest along out of those three, but I would say Opelka has the best career when it's all said and done because he, he shows the same kind of serving promise that John Isner showed, but he's a better mover, covers the court well, better footwork, so I think he can be a better baseliner. Let's see. What else do we have? After going 18-0, and 0, did you feel like Djokovic was going to have another 2015-like dominant season? Um, yeah, pro probably. The competition is probably, believe it or not, stiffer in 2019 than it was in 2015. I think in 2015, Federer and Nadal were down and, and I think... You know, I think the lost gen were were bigger players than than anyone else. So 
I do think the competition is better right now. So I don't think Djokovic could have been as dominant as 2015 or 2016 given his competition. But I will say that I think the fact that this was an Olympic year had Djokovic at the peak of his focus, at the peak of his conditioning and his motivation. Um, And I think it was very telling, Djokovic on an Instagram Live. I forget if he was talking with Murray or Vavrinka, but he said his two most crushing defeats in his career— the defeats that made him the most upset were the 2008 loss at the Beijing Olympics and the 2012 loss to Murray at the uh, London Summer Olympics. It's pretty telling that Djokovic's most two uh, most stinging defeats were both Olympics. He really wants that gold medal. And I think that went into why he was so focused and he looked so good at the start of 2019, uh, 2020 rather. I kept saying 2019 through that entire answer, like a like an idiot. All right. <laughs> Any thoughts on David Gaffan? He should age pretty gracefully, I think, with just how talented he is with the racket. Um, and I don't think his game is awfully physical. So I think he should age pretty well and could uh, keep a top 15 standing for quite a while. But his serve and his lack of physicality will will always hold him back. Let's see. How many more slams do you think Murray would have won if he had an elite forehand? Ooh, massive, massive. Huge factor with, with Andy. Um... Yeah, I mean, it was really hard for Murray to generate offense. He had to get really creative. He had to use a lot of drop shots. He had to use a lot of angles, the geometry of the court, you know, having to change direction. It was never really straightforward. He had, you know, he could pop his first serve pretty big. That helped him a lot. But yeah, the fact that Murray had a lot of trouble, especially from the middle of the court, ending points with his forehand, that certainly held him back. No doubt about it. Um, And like, yeah, I mean, give me joke. There's a fair bit of distance between Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, all three of their forehands, and Murray. So that's one area where you can pretty much pinpoint and say that those three are are uh, superior to Andy. So I think it's a huge factor. Could have had more slams with the better forehand. Absolutely. Um, Who are some players you feel are poised to have good results immediately once tennis starts up again? And who do you think might have a drop-off in results? It depends how quickly tennis restarts. Like, if it's going to restart really quickly and players go from isolation and quarantine and then suddenly they're playing matches you're probably going to see a fair bit of uh i want to say um a fair bit of distance between players who have were, were training and players who weren't and you'll see that play out and factor into results 
but it's really hard to know where you know what each player is doing. I was surprised that Nadal has not been training, for example. He's someone who I just sort of assumed because of what he has with essentially a private academy. I just kind of assumed that he would be out on the courts playing. Turns out he hasn't been. So it, it's really, really impossible to predict who's training and who's not. Um, I know Zverev's been training. I saw that recently. How slash why did Nadal get better on grass before he did on hard court? Yeah, it's interesting. The ball sits up for him a little bit longer on grass sometimes. The bounce uh, is a little bit... I mean, in his book, he, he always said he preferred Wimbledon to like the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open was faster when Nadal wrote his book. But yeah, that is interesting. I do think that the ball has a tendency to... Uh, sometimes bounce a little higher it, on modern grass, honestly. Uh, and I know that's kind of strange, but the uh, the old U.S. Open courts, when Nadal was having a lot of trouble winning U.S. Opens in the uh, late 2010s, it was a pretty low bounce. I think Wimbledon was a higher bounce. Deep cut here. How, um, how would each career's... How would... Ha Wait. How would have each player's careers been different if Sanga beat Djokovic in the 2008 final? I would say the biggest difference would be just the perception we have of Joe Wilfred Sanga. Because uh, players who win majors are just perceived to be uh, better. Like, it's, it's a pretty exclusive club. And the difference between being in that club and not being in that club is pretty substantial. But other than that, I, I think... You know, wouldn't have been very different. It's just one tournament. That kind of goes back to the question about, like, the Federer-Djokovic U.S. Opens in 2010 and 2011. I don't think that one match often, like, changes the entire course of players' careers. I don't. Like, it's fun to think about, but I don't think it is uh, a reality. All right, I'm back to the YouTube comments. Those are all the Twitter comments. Thoughts on the Sampras versus Agassi rivalry? Um, certainly on my list is covering that further. I want to do the 2001 U.S. Open um, quarterfinal between Sampras and Agassi. I want to do that match. One area Medvedev, Tsitsipas, team, and Zverev should work on in the extended time away from court to get to the next level, to win a slam. Medvedev, he needs to do some weapon building on his forehand so that he can generate more offense off of his forehand wing. Basically, exactly what I just talked about with uh, the question regarding Andy Murray. Medvedev needs to build up his forehand more. Tsitsipas, I'd say backhand return. Dominic Team, hmm, <laughs> he's he, he's done, man, I mean, he's taken leaps and bounds. I don't know what the next step is for team. I would say he needs to continue also to, to work on taking his return early. That'll that'll uh, improve his results on faster courts. I'm, I'm telling you, the next step for team is has to do a lot with match toughness. And... 
I really don't think his... I think he's doing all the right things on the practice courts, developing his skills. He just needs to put it together. And when a guy like Nadal drags him into the trenches, team needs to win one of these dogfights. And that's going to take, you know, learning how to suffer on the court, learning how to stick with the game plan, not get impatient, not overhit when, when you're tired. I think a lot of teams' pitfalls are no longer about his ability to be consistent or his shot selection or his ability to defend his backhand or absorb pace or improve his backhand slice. I think all these things he's getting so much better at. He's developing the technical aspect of his game at such a high rate. Now it's going to be about playing an elite player and actually crossing the finish line in a competitive match setting. You know, he just needs to grow up in match play. Like, I really don't think there's much he can do on the practice court here, besides continuing to uh, develop the skills that he's already working on developing. Zverev. Um, his kick serve. <laughs> his second serve. Zverev has employed recently and at the Australian Open he did this, you know, a really great strategy of just serving really high percentage first serve by just not going, by just aiming for the middle of the box, you know, and, and serving mid 130s, but going for the middle of the box and just relying on his power to make up for his lack of spot serving. Good strategy, but it would be better if he could just develop his second serve. Zverev's another guy. He needs to he needs match play. So he's you know, he's got mental improvements to make and that's not going to come on the practice court. It's just not. What specific adjustments did Federer make to stop Nadal from overpowering his backhand and what adjustments should Nadal make to stop Novak from bullying his forehand and is he capable of doing it? The big adjustment that Federer made was court position on his backhand. If you watch earlier matches between Federer and Nadal, Federer is hovering just behind the baseline and the ball is kicking up high over Federer's shoulder when he and he's having to hit high backhands. What Federer did at the 2017 Australian Open is he stepped inside the baseline and took Nadal's cross-court forehand on the rise before it could kick up ab above his shoulders. I think there's a technical side of that where, you know, he increased the his racket head size, which made it a little bit easier for him to take that backhand early on the rise uh, because it's really hard to square that kind of shot up and a bigger sweet spot helps. So I think that helped. Also, I think mechanically when you're taking the ball on the rise, it's important that you're flattening the ball out a little bit. It's a lot, it's pretty hard to hit topspin on the rise. So I think he did flatten that backhand out a little bit. So uh, the technical side of that got a little bit easier. But yeah, if you look at what Federer did 2017, I think Sabre, sneak attack by Roger, where he charged in before the serve, you know, that was a symbolic representation of the, of the adjustment Federer really made, where, you know, he was always a player who could take the ball early, but he just took it to the next level. He took it to a place where, where no one's really no one's really seen that, you know? I mean, John McEnroe standing in no man's land doesn't count. That doesn't count. That was totally a different thing. 
you know, Federer um, doing it in, in the modern game with modern string and racket technology and, and playing a baseline game from inside the baseline, you know, is something that we really haven't seen. But it was all about controlling height, controlling height through his, through his court position. You know, he was able to control his contact point um, by controlling his own court position. How can Nadal stop Novak from bullying his forehand? Here's what Nadal needs to do. He needs to do exactly what he did in the 2018 Wimbledon semifinal. It, it, he, what he did, he did everything right in that match, but his serve was really weak. So he didn't win the match. He would have won the match. Nadal needs to serve like he did or like he has been recently. Um, he needs his 2019 serve in his 2018 baseline play, and he will give Djokovic a run for his money. Now, let me... I realize I just glossed over what he was doing in that match against Djokovic. Um, he was going, you know, flat and hard to Novak's forehand. So... He was taking his forehand down the line at the first possible opportunity. What, you know, where Nadal is going to get in trouble is when he's looping forehands cross court to Djokovic's backhand. And again, what is Djokovic doing? He's, he's taking the ball early, stepping inside the baseline, taking that ball on the rise. Exactly what Federer figured out how to do. It's the same thing. Um, but Nadal can take Djokovic out of that position by going hard and flat down the line or hard, you know hard and flat to Djokovic's forehand side. Uh, if you watch back, if you watch that Wimbledon semifinal back in 2018, every time Nadal had a chance to go that direction, he did. And when I say he has a chance, I mean that uh, the ball is weak enough where he can change direction, go over the high part of the net, etc. It's not easy to go down the line all the time. What's your racket setup? I use a Babolat Pure Strike team, uh, Luxalon strings at um, a tension of 56. Luxalon, uh, big banger. Uh, how many more Grand Slams do you think Federer is going to win? One more. Do you think you could take a game off of Jeff Salzenstein? Woo! <laughs> this is a this is a, this is a good one. Um, okay, I definitely couldn't break his serve. Let's throw that out the window. Um, and you know, I mean, this is this is a tough question. So so let me let me put it this way. Jeff uh, played at Stanford. That's where he went to college, um, and that's where he played his tennis, his D one tennis. I, um, one of the best players I've ever played actually committed to Stanford, um, a year after I played him. So he was a senior in high school when I played him. I don't know if he was a five-star recruit or a blue chip recruit, but, uh, his name's Sam Churchetta. Uh, he's still at Stanford now. And, uh, I did not take a game. I didn't take a game, but I, but I, I remember very clearly I had 40-30 on my serve. You know, it was one of those matches where you go in and, you know, you're just, my number one goal was to have fun. He's, you know, he's, he was such a really great player that I wanted to have fun playing him. The second thing was to try to not get bageled. And uh, I remember it was 40-30. I had game point. 
Uh, I get a short ball. I step in. I hit this great inside-out forehand. I go to the net. The guy is all the way in the corner of the court. I am at the net. You know, if I if I just get a volley to hit, I'm going to have the whole court to hit into. And the guy scrapes the ball off the ground <laughs> and hits a winner down the line. I can't even reach it. I mean, he hits this absurd pass. I cannot believe I didn't win a game because he hit that damn shot. So I've still never forgotten that. Um, so I, the answer to this question is honestly like maybe, maybe not, but, um, I also haven't actually seen Jeff play, so, but I definitely couldn't break his serve. I've seen him hit serves like in his drills videos. I, I think I'd have tons of trouble. Uh, but I think, I think maybe I could, but maybe I wouldn't. We'll see. I don't know. Um, this person is saying, I don't believe Djokovic was a late bloomer. He won five Masters, a Grand Slam, year-end championship. Yeah, I mean, he's only a late bloomer if you compare him to, like, Nadal. But I'm certainly guilty. Like, I forget that Nadal and Djokovic are only one year apart because Djokovic uh, was a late bloomer compared to Nadal. Let's go with uh, one more. Um, or let's go with this one random non-tennis related one are you single what other things do you do for a living i'm not single uh, my girlfriend and i've been together for about a, a year and a half um you can check out our uh the french open vlog if you search that you'll you'll see her um what other things do you do for a living i cover uh syracuse athletics so um syracuse football syracuse basketball on the radio on um so I, I call their games. Um, I do some TV stuff too. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm up in Syracuse covering SU Athletics. That's what I do. Um, all right. This has been fun. We will do it again sometime. Uh, I'm really excited about the guest I'm bringing in on Monday. I can't wait. He is a very – I'm going to keep it a surprise. He's a very, very uh, well-known very talented, very funny American sports broadcaster who uh, tennis fans will know for his work um, for Tennis Channel, doing the French Open every year, but um, also uh, used to work for CBS. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm pretty sure I uh, used to do U.S. Opens for when CBS had it and all that. So I'm super excited for Monday. Um, if you, if you want to go back, recent... Monday Match Analysis Classics, I brought on Ben Rothenberg on the last one to talk about uh, Federer Roddick in 2009, the Wimbledon final. I talked with Alex Gruskin uh, to talk about the 2009 U.S. Open final, Federer Del Potro. And uh, Amy Lundy, we went over Serena Williams versus Kim Kleisters in the uh, 2009 U.S. Open semifinal. And as I said at the start of the video with Ben Rothenberg, I'm going to effort to get some more diversity here. Um, I let the guests choose, and it just so happens we've had too much 2009 and too much Roger Federer. So uh, I'm going to get some uh, some Nadal in, some Djokovic in. Don't worry. And I'm also going to get some non-2009 in. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini yeah, it's fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.